Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Hello and welcome back to the final episode of Fertility Friendly Food and it's definitely a bittersweet one. The thought of it being the last episode of the season is both uh, exciting and a little bit sad. I'm really excited because I have a really good plan for season two and it's going to be completely different to season one so I'm really excited for that. Um, But yeah, it's sad to be saying goodbye, uh, 12 episodes in total and yeah, it's kind of a little bit sad. But anyway, diving into today's topic, we're talking all about, um, off the back of episode 10, which was uh, about gut and hormones, we are talking about periods, pooping, and IBS, and IBS associated with particularly endometriosis and also PCOS, which is one that is commonly not thought of or heard of. So I thought I would dive in first and foremost by talking about a very common symptom that women have on or near their period, which is funky poops or what I call period poops. Now, girl, we're already talking about periods and all sorts of other business in here. So if the word poop or stool or feces makes you giggle, I think I'm going to desensitize you in this episode with the amount of times I'm going to say these words interchangeably. So a lot of women that I see and also just that I ask in my life tell me that their poos on or near their period are a bit weird. So they're either looser than their usual or they tend to get a little bit constipated and they just, you know, kind of accepted this, thought it was normal. And to a degree, it's kind of normal. But if you're wondering why this is the case, then I thought I would start this episode by diving into this first before we go into the nitty gritty of IBS, PCOS and endo. Okay, so the main reason why women experience some funky stools around their period is because of a chemical messenger called prostaglandins. Now, prostaglandins are in fact not a hormone like estrogen or progesterone, but rather a chemical messenger that is produced at the just before and during the first few days of your period. And these are the chemicals responsible for the uterus's contractions, aka cramps. And so these are not the, the fun guys to have around. These are the things causing the cramps and the pain, or at least contributing significantly to them. However, prostaglandins can also act on other smooth muscle, which is found in many of our organs, including, of course, our bowels. And so prostaglandins can, in fact, cause over-contraction or under-contraction of the bowel around the time of our periods. And so this is the main explanation as to why most women experience some kind of pooping abnormality around the time of their periods. So 
What can you do about it? We're going to dive into this a little bit more later on. The next thing I want to introduce to you is a little bit about IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. Now, 15% of Australians are affected by irritable bowel syndrome and women are two times as likely to be diagnosed with the condition compared to men. So it is something so common that I see in my practice and also tends to coincide a lot with different hormonal issues too. So we're sitting here tackling hormone issues from a dietary perspective as well as gut issues from a dietary perspective. So IBS is really a diagnosis of exclusion. So this means other conditions such as celiac disease, a parasitic infection, diverticular disease or diverticulitis, or even inflammatory bowel disease or gynecological conditions such as endometriosis have to be excluded before you actually receive a diagnosis of IBS. And this is commonly not known by many of the people that I see. And so I'm often sending so many back for testing. So before we dive into the relationships that we see between PCOS and endo and IBS, I thought I would take you through the diagnostic criteria, um, which are called the Rome criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. So I'm going to read it verbatim. At least three months with onset at least six months previously, so had to have started at least six months ago and at least three months of persistent of recurrent abdominal pain or discomfort associated with two or more of the following improvement with defecation. So going to the bathroom and or onset associated with the change in frequency of stool and or onset associated with the change in form or appearance of stool. And generally we use a chart called the Bristol stool chart. I'll try and leave a link to one down below for you to have a look at. I know you're daring to look at pictures of poop. That's for sure. (laughs) Um, But this is what we use to classify stool consistency. So we are talking about the same thing across the board as healthcare professionals. Now there's also a variety of types of irritable bowel syndrome, including IBS with constipation, known as IBS-C, IBS with diarrhea, known as IBS-D, IBS mixed type, so used to be formerly known as IBS alternating, so you swing between, say, constipation and diarrhea, known as IBS-M, and IBS unsubtyped, IBS-U, so it doesn't have quite any of the patterns that could fall within these classifications. So in episode five, I talked a lot about endometriosis and how it affects one in 10 women of reproductive age. And I'm in fact one in 10 of Australian women of reproductive age with endometriosis. But well before I got diagnosed with endometriosis, I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. And this is the case for a lot of women with endometriosis. However, there is also a high co-prevalence or co-occurrence of IBS and endometriosis, meaning that there's a lot of women out there suffering with both completely separate diagnoses and conditions, but there is a lot of overlap. Different studies report different numbers, but it sits somewhere between 36% and 52% of women with endo also have IBS. And this could be due to a symptom overlap of abdominal pain as well as altered bowel function. 
But why is it that women with endo are two and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with IBS also? Different theories have been proposed from a mutual promotion effect, i.e. one makes the other worse, and both having a common factor of chronic low-grade inflammation, both presenting commonly as chronic abdominal pain. And so another idea is that both conditions share this concept called visceral hypersensitivity, which is basically the nerves around the abdomen are more sensitive to pain stimuli than other people's with the exact same pain stimuli. For example, say there's a certain liters of gas inside a woman with IBS and or endometriosis um, versus a woman with neither of these conditions, the woman with endo and IBS would be more susceptible to abdominal distension or bloating um, and pain versus the other woman. It can be the exact same content of gas in terms of liters, but the way that the body reacts to this is completely different. So, This contributes to a higher intensity of pain and many women with endo actually do experience visceral hypersensitivity. As emphasized in the research, of course, a multidisciplinary approach is advised when we're talking about a co-occurrence of the two conditions. So that's the link between endo and IBS. But what about PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome, which is the condition that I talked about in episode four? So there doesn't seem to be as much data on some relationship between PCOS and IBS. So we know that PCOS affects between 18 to 20% of women. And one study done in 2010 highlighted that 42% of women with PCOS also experienced symptoms of IBS, which is a lot higher than the 15% diagnosis rate amongst the general population. So where is the overlap? We know that hormones can potentially play a role in IBS symptom triggers. Although PCOS is characterized by high levels of androgens like testosterone, this has not been previously researched in IBS before. So we're not sure whether it's testosterone or estrogen or progesterone that's playing a role. So it's not quite understood why women with PCOS are more likely to have a diagnosis of IBS than other women. And given that the study in 2010 was quite small, uh, it's hard to really understand. So it is still important to screen yourself for other more sinister conditions like I discussed, such as inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, parasites, endometriosis, just to name a few before you pursue some dietary changes. So on that note, I thought I would take you through some of the quick things. They're not really quick. Let's be real. Some of the things that you can do to help yourself if you've got bowel symptoms similar to IBS. Now, before you dive into the low FODMAP diet endorsed by Monash University and really well-researched it is important to have a think about what we call first-line therapy as the low FODMAP diet is second-line therapy. So going back to the first one, so say you don't have PCOS, you don't have endo, you don't even have IBS, you just have funky poos on or around your period. 
The number one thing I would be focusing on for you is sorting out the prostaglandin situation. So this will involve really increasing your omega-3 fatty acid content because this will help synthesize or make more of a particular prostaglandin because there's three and two being pro-inflammatory and one being anti-inflammatory. So the pro-inflammatory ones feed off things like saturated fats from animal foods um, and palm oil and coconut oil. And the anti-inflammatory ones love omega-3 fatty acids. And that's found in our oily fish like salmon, mackerel, anchovy, sardines, and trout. And also in plant-based sources like hemp seeds, walnuts, flax seeds, to name a few. I've talked a little bit about why omega-3s from these plant-based sources aren't as well-absorbed or preferred by the body, but still nonetheless a good idea to get enough of these ALAs in there too. This really, really helps when it comes to prostaglandin balance is really bumping up those omega-3 fatty acids and reducing those saturated fats as well. And in the meantime, as well, focusing on our plant-based foods, so not a vegan diet, but foods that are plants like fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, beans, extra virgin olive oil, in addition to our oily fish, are what we really, really want to be focusing on when it comes to prostaglandin balance and reducing those unwanted, loose or not so loose bowel motions on or around our periods. The next, if you are experiencing constipation and diarrhea, is to consider your fiber intake. And a lot of people ask me, well, what is fiber? So fiber is the undigestible component of food by human enzymes. And in fact, most of us worldwide can't even agree on a definition of fiber. So it's safe to say that many people don't know what fiber is anyway. So there are different types of fiber. There are three main kinds, soluble, that dissolve in water and make the stool a more gel-like consistency and theoretically slow down how quickly the contents of the bowel moves through the gut. So this has a slowing down effect. So if you have, say, looser bowel motions or things are moving through just a bit too quickly because of all those smooth muscle contractions due to those pesky prostaglandins, then you definitely want to be focusing on soluble fiber insoluble fiber doesn't dissolve in water. And so this is your rough stuff. This is the skin on apples and potatoes and on our fruits and vegetables. This is the roughage and roughage helps things move faster through the bowel. So this is great, particularly if you've got constipation. And then the third type of fiber is known as resistant starch and resistant starch is found in cooked and cooled rice, pasta, legumes and beans as well, as well as cooked and cooled potatoes. The role of this type of fiber is to actually nourish and feed the colonocytes or enterocytes, the cells that actually line the bowel and nourish them and help them produce more short chain fatty acids as well, which is really critical for the health of our bowel. So as you can see, it's not a carbohydrate free diet that's going to help you when it comes to sorting out bowel motions. And I think in theory, this whole low carb revolution has probably triggered a few more gut kind of issues for some people as well, because this is what our gut bacteria love and they love fiber. 
So feeding them fiber and modifying fiber balance can help when it comes to managing your stool consistency or frequency on or around your period. So that's one tip. The other tip around bloating is to avoid things that are really tight, load up on things that are like peppermint tea. Um, you can even use peppermint oil capsules, um, which you can generally get at the pharmacy for symptom management. And there's a few also kind of herbal concoctions that have been clinically tested to help with IBS symptoms. So these are the ones that I kind of using my tool bag for just symptom management. If you know you're going out or going on holiday and you're definitely going to get some symptoms and you can't avoid a potential trigger, say it's alcohol or say it's caffeine or say it's high fat foods that you might be eating out or on holidays, then this might be um, a strategy that you can use. I also named some other irritants to the bowel that aren't necessarily FODMAPs. And so like I just said, caffeine, alcohol, fat, and also fiber can be triggers to the bowel for different people. So some people are super, super sensitive to caffeine. They drink some caffeine, they're running to the toilet. Other people, not so much. So it just really depends how you react to each of these things and just tuning in and being more aware of your reactions to these things. The other thing is about stress and anxiety on the gut-brain axis. So the vagus nerve runs between the brain and the gut, and this is a two-way street. So if we have an anxious, unsettled mind, then our gut can become unsettled too. So focusing on actually our brains and our mental health can really make a difference when it comes to gut symptoms. And I think that this is one of the most powerful tools. In fact, there was a study done comparing a 12-week yoga trial versus uh, the low FODMAP diet, and there was equal results between reducing IBS symptoms in both groups. So 12 weeks of yoga classes for one group and 12 weeks of the low FODMAP diet for another group. And they were equal in benefit. So this just really goes to show the role of relaxation and movement when it comes to the gut-brain axis and also the symptoms of IBS. So it's totally, totally worth thinking about, whether that's a mindfulness app, I really love Headspace and Calm, or signing up for a yoga class. These can all be really good ways to not only do some self-care, but also tackle your symptoms of IBS, say. The uh, the last resort, the absolute last resort is going on a restrictive diet like the low FODMAP diet. The biggest misconception about the low FODMAP diet is that it is lifelong. This is not true. The period of reducing the FODMAP load, also known as the substitution phase, should not last any more than a maximum of six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks. Not six years. Six weeks. Sorry. I know I repeated that a lot, but I see... So, so many people on restrictive low FODMAP diets, like they're doing the elimination or substitution phase for years. And this can potentially be causing other issues in the gut because we are starving them of the prebiotic fibers that they love because FODMAPs are in fact fermentable carbohydrates that the gut microbiome absolutely loves. So depriving them of these critical fibers for so long could potentially be really harmful to the dynamic and the balance of the gut microbiota. So what we want to be doing is if you are going to even consider the low FODMAP diet for managing your IBS is 100% you need to be booking in with a dietitian. Do not do this alone. This is the one thing I 
I'm so non-negotiable about, you know, there's one thing about reading blogs from even dietitians like me and taking the best bits and implementing and running with it. Amazing. Great. I'm all about accessibility, but the FODMAP diet is not one you want to be flying solo on. Every single woman I've seen that's flown solo on it has come back and seen a dietitian and been like, I don't know what I was doing. It was complicated. I think I did it wrong. I think I need to do it again. You don't want to do it again. Do it once, do it well, and do it with supervision. So the first phase, two to six weeks, is a substitution phase where you substitute high FODMAP foods for lower FODMAP foods. It's not a complete elimination. The next phase is about challenging. So if you've got a symptom improvement in that first two to six weeks, then we would consider going to the challenge phase. Now, I always say it's really up to you as a person to determine whether the low FODMAP diet has given you enough of a benefit to your symptoms and therefore your quality of life before we proceed to challenging. And this is really a personal decision. So many of you ask me, oh, do you think I should do it? I don't really know because I don't know your body. So you need to make that decision. If we go on to challenges, this is what it would look like. You systematically reintroduce singular FODMAPs, which there are about eight to 10. And then there's also combination challenges for for those who are interested or willing to do so. Um, It really just depends. This can be customized. So if you already know you're lactose intolerant, no point challenging lactose. We already know what's up. If you already know garlic and onion don't sit well with you, but you're only trying to work out your threshold, it might be worth challenging. If you have no idea what, you know, mushrooms or cauliflower do to you, the FODMAP mannitol, that's probably a good idea to challenge them, especially if these are part of your regular diet. The goal is to systematically reintroduce the different FODMAP groups at increasing doses to see at what point you get a symptom, if a symptom at all, so we can determine what we call threshold tolerance or, yeah, your tolerance level. So that is the critical part, is a short phase of reduction and then a challenge phase of systematic reintroduction and seeing whether we can correlate the reintroduction of a certain FODMAP food group with your symptoms. The final phase is to review the challenge results and customize the diet and liberalize the diet to include all foods except those that you showed some reaction to and not completely eliminating these foods, but in fact incorporating them, but at at or below the threshold dosage. So say, for example, you can tolerate only half a teaspoon of garlic, then we wouldn't eliminate garlic in its entirety because it has prebiotic benefits. We would incorporate garlic at half a teaspoon, say maximum every one or two days and see how we go from there to try and minimize symptoms. So it's all about having the most open and flexible diet that makes life easy without getting symptoms. And that's really the sweet spot we're looking for here when it comes to the low FODMAP diet. There is so much more to talk about in the low FODMAP diet and you 100% need to book with the dietitian if you are struggling with this. Um, If you uh, can't afford to see a dietitian, I really, really recommend my colleague Chloe McLeod's The FODMAP Challenge, which you can do self-directed online and it is completely designed by a dietitian. I 100% recommend it. Check it out. I'll leave a link in the show notes for you. 
There are so many other approaches to IBS I could talk you through as well, but I'm trying to keep the episode short and this has definitely been my longest episode. So if you want to learn more about IBS, I do have a few blogs on my blog post and I'll also leave some awesome resources, including books and blogs that I love to read and recommend to my clients um, to learn more about IBS and gut health as well in general. So that's a wrap on my final episode for Fertility Friendly Food, the first season. It was all about poop, periods, PCOS and endometriosis. I will be back for season two soon. In the meantime, stay tuned on my social media at the underscore dietologist on Instagram and at the dietologist on Facebook. And you can find me on Twitter too, which is the underscore dietologist as well. But I'm definitely most active on Instagram. So definitely check me out there and you'll be probably one of the first people to know when season two is returning. Don't forget to download my free preconception lifestyle checklist for him and for her at thedietologist.com.au forward slash freebies. And of course, join the conversation and the group Fertility Friendly Food on Facebook for more free and practical information about fertility and nutrition. Until next season, please leave me a rating and a review. It really helps me spread the message far and wide about all things fertility and nutrition. And I will catch you soon. Bye-bye.